2: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post, wherever you listen.
4: On this episode of Newt's World, my guest is Dennis Prager. He is the national radio host of The Dennis Prager Show, heard around America and around the world. He has talked to millions of people over the last 40 years. He's traveled to 130 countries, all 50 American states, has lectured on the seven continents, conducts symphony orchestras, is a best-selling author of nine books, co-founded the online nonprofit Prager University, whose videos have been viewed around the world over a billion times a year. Today, he's here to talk about his new book, The Rational Passover Haggadah, in which he boldly addresses the most difficult questions about Passover. The nearly 2,000-year-old Passover Haggadah has inspired millions around the world every year to learn about and relive one of the most famous stories of all time, the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dennis Prager. Thank you for joining me.
5: I'm truly honored to be with you.
4: The new book is actually part of a series, which is very, I think, impressive.
5: Thank you. If people don't start taking the Bible seriously, in the West at least, I don't have any optimism for the West. Not because God will punish us. I don't have that sort of belief. I believe deeply in God, but we will punish ourselves. If we don't get our values from the Bible like the founders did, whether they were Trinitarian Christians or not, They got their values from the Bible. That's why there's a biblical verse on the Liberty Bell, to give just one example. And so I feel a task to bring the brilliance of the Bible, the first five books specifically, because that's the basis of everything in the Old and New Testament, to as wide an audience of atheists, Christians, Jews, Buddhists, you name it. Because I know Biblical Hebrew very, very well, and that's a tool for me to do it, and because I've been teaching it all of my life. This is not a Biblical book. I call the Rational Bible. Genesis and Exodus are out. Deuteronomy is coming out later in the year. I took a detour to explain the oldest holiday in the world, Passover. 3,000 years of observance. By the way, I just want to say this. Mr. Speaker. No nation and no religion can survive the death of ritual. The fact that Jews have been practicing the same ritual for 3,000 years is a very big reason they have survived. That America has abandoned July 4th, Memorial Day, largely Christmas, Thanksgiving, Lincoln's birthday, Washington's birthday, The Pledge of Allegiance, it has abandoned ritual, and that is a major reason we are struggling to survive. So that's why I think this is so applicable to people of every background and every faith.
4: Well, it's, to me, fascinating. We've been talking a lot here at Gingrich 360 about the degree to which the society has slid into lives and deaths of despair. The number of suicides, the number of drug overdoses, the number of young people who have now been brainwashed into believing that global warming will end their lifetime, and therefore they have nothing to look forward to. It's astonishing how much the collapse of belief, and as you point out, ritual is the architectural structure on which belief hangs, how much it's created a vacuum, and the inability to fill that vacuum with purely rational, or for that matter, purely hedonist behaviors. And in that sense, it seems to me, you're sort of filling an extraordinarily important gap in the whole nature of the survival of Western civilization.
5: Well, thank you, but I know it's just not an issue of whether you're complimenting me. You're making a very important statement of filling the hole. Secularism creates a gigantic hole. There are many wonderful secular people, and there are some awful religious people. That's a given. But secularism creates a whole. And you cannot live a fully secular life. What you do is you create secular religion. You mentioned one, environmentalism. Environmentalism is a religion. It is not a science. It is a religion. Feminism, Marxism socialism, all these isms are to fill the hole that secularism has created. A personal proof (laughs) has been, you're going to find this amazing. Costco has ordered 35,000 copies of my Deuteronomy book coming out later in the year. Now, my view is if Costco orders Deuteronomy, there is definitely some demand that we're not aware of on the part of people to fill their lives with some content they have never been given. I mean, it is not an insult for me to say that I don't think almost anyone working in the highest echelons, I don't mean workers, I don't know if the CEO of Costco could spell Deuteronomy.
4: I want you to explain for a minute, you entitle your five-volume work, The Rational Bible. Now, why did you pick that term?
5: My route to God and faith is entirely, and I mean entirely, through reason. I'm not boasting. I don't have a mystical bone in my body. If it doesn't make sense to me, I reject it, which may be arrogant. And as a result, however, I have been able to bring a vast number of people to take God, Bible, and ultimately Christianity or Judaism seriously, because my approach is completely rooted in a, this makes sense, and I use reason, so the title of my series is The Rational Bible, and this one is The Rational Passover Haggadah.
4: So, okay, let me go back, though, because I was once upon a time a historian by training. What is your relationship with God? Well... And where did it start?
5: You asked the $64,000 question.
4: Well, thank you. And all I want is a $64,000 answer. Where did it start?
5: Let me answer the first one first and then go backwards. My relationship with God will not satisfy all religious people. I don't have a particularly warm relationship with God. In fact, I wrote an essay in my book of essays, Think a Second Time. So this is a very long time ago I wrote that loving God is the most difficult law in the Bible. It is a law. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. And it is an interesting thing. Why would God, or if you will, Moses, or if you will, Joe, whoever you believe wrote it, I believe it's from God, Why would God tell us to love him? And my answer is because he knows it doesn't come naturally. There is so much suffering in the world that if you're sensitive to it, it's not easy to love God. So we're told to love God. We're not told to love our children. That comes naturally. But we're told to love God because it doesn't come naturally, and it certainly doesn't to me. Secondly, You asked my relationship, so I don't view God as the provider of what I need. In other words, I don't ask God for anything. I have made one request of God, ironically, one prayer, and sort of the joke is on you, Dennis. It actually was fulfilled. but. I am 99% interested in what God wants from me, and 1% interested in what I want from God. I am very preoccupied with what God wants from me, and I try to devote my life to fulfilling that. When did I start with God? I was raised in a religious Jewish home. It was an Orthodox Jewish home, I went to yeshiva, Orthodox Jewish schools till I was 19. That's why I have such a solid background, Biblical Hebrew, for example. And so there's no question that has played a role in my religiosity. Nevertheless, I have tried to do everything through... It makes sense, and it does make sense, and I try to make sense of the most difficult parts of the first five books of the Bible, and that's why people read it.
3: Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.
4: I find it fascinating because you drive home a fascinating point in your book that there are actually two parallel liberations occurring that there's a liberation that really relates to the Egyptians, and there's a liberation that relates to sin and to the worship of false gods. And that in a very real sense, both of them are captured in the Passover. And I found myself, because we have a wonderful computer specialist, and Alan is also A rabbi. And so he saw my interviewing you as an excuse to start handing me more material to read and to get a full feeling for the Passover. And as I was going through it, I was really struck with how, and I think it's very hard for Americans who tend to be very here and now people to realize we're discussing 3,000 years of shared tradition. That is, as alive today as it was the night people began to leave Egypt. And that's kind of astonishing.
5: Well, this is part of the magic of Jewish survival. So I open up the rational Passover Haggadah with the beginning of the recitation. Haggadah means recitation, to recite, to tell. So the beginning of the telling is, we were slaves in Egypt. And I make a point, it doesn't say they were slaves in Egypt, it says we were slaves in Egypt. It is impossible to overstate the significance of the difference. When I was a kid, I said I was a slave in Egypt. That's a big deal. I was, not they. So this notion, I wish were carried on, I wish we said, We signed the Declaration of Independence. We fought Britain. We made a constitution. That would change the way Americans related to their past. You were there. Remember that old program on TV? You are there. That's what this Haggadah does. You are there. As for the other point, the two liberations, there are two types of enslavement, external and internal. External is a pharaoh, is a dictator, is a totalitarian state. Internal bondage is addiction, just to give a perfect example. We are not liberated until we're liberated from our nature or from the parts of our nature that enslave us, our appetites, our addictions, and we're not liberated, obviously, until we're free from an external in that is why the purpose of the Exodus was only partially fulfilled leaving Egypt. It was fully fulfilled at Sinai when the law was given.
4: Well, and that's part of what strikes me. There's a book on the Enlightenment which goes into the distinction between a Scottish and English Enlightenment which retained a very deeply religious core, and the French Enlightenment, which had, in essence, driven religion out and had created a secular revolution. And I was always struck by that distinction, that in a way, the Wesley brothers and the level of passion that they created around salvation changed the entire trajectory of English culture away from the kind of activities which might have led to a French Revolution and towards a pattern of salvation, which ultimately in the next generation leads Wilberforce as a devout Methodist to lead the anti-slavery movement in a way that was totally unpredictable. And I really believe that we, by having overemphasized rationality in the last two or three generations, that we really miss a great deal of the core of life, which fundamentally involves an emotional connectivity that has to be fulfilled beyond yourself.
5: I couldn't agree more. And it may sound odd, given that I said my route to God is through reason. And I still contend that. My mind has to be satisfied before I do anything. However, having said that, the most meaningful things in life come through the emotion. Your love of your friends, your love of your spouse, hopefully, your love of your children, of your parents, if you have that. Love is emotional. Music is emotional. Bonding with other people in a community is emotional. Listen, I'm a big fan of the Sabbath from Friday night sunset to Saturday night sunset. I don't read a newspaper. I don't listen to radio. I don't watch television. I just spend it with friends. Friday night Shabbat dinner with friends. I founded a synagogue in LA where I teach every week. And that goes through two o'clock as we have lunch together. Then I have my second lunch with friends. I've had my Shabbat lunch with for 40 years. It is a highlight of my life every single week. People who come, whom I invite to share the Friday night dinner with, their first reaction is, you have this every week? And I say, it's what keeps me sane. And, you know, I can't advocate this strongly enough that people have a Sabbath in their life. These powerful emotional bonds are a major source of my joy in life.
4: But a component of that is that that also involves friends, that somehow you are participating not just in ritual, but you're participating in a renewal of a human bond, which transcends your own individuality.
5: I entirely agree. However. Were it not for the religious component, I would not meet with them every week. We would all find reasons to be too busy that Saturday afternoon or that Friday night. One of my lunch friends is a psychiatrist. You know, I've just got to see some patients. There's always reason not to do it. I believe that God commanded me to observe the Sabbath, just as I believe God commanded me not to murder. It's in the Ten Commandments. You have to have something of faith in your life. I meet with my friends because I love my friends, but were it not for the commandment of the Sabbath, we wouldn't meet every week.
4: So, one of the points you make is that the process of Passover and studying Passover and the meaning of Passover is relevant to everyone. It's not just a Jewish tradition, but in fact it has a meaning that is potentially accessible to everybody. Can can you walk us through that just a little bit?
5: The motto of my life with regard to teaching the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and therefore the Rational Bible, I've been teaching this for 40 years to Jews and non-Jews. And I said before every class, either the Torah speaks to everyone or it speaks to no one. The idea that any of this stuff only speaks to Jews is to me as absurd as Beethoven only speaks to Germans, or Shakespeare only speaks to the English. Shakespeare speaks to everyone, Beethoven speaks to everyone, and my deepest belief is all of these texts speak to everyone. It is hard for me to imagine somebody reading my Rational Bible or the Rational Passover I got on thinking, gee, this doesn't apply to me. <laughs> there are 4,000 reviews on Amazon of my Rational Bible series, and most of them are from non-Jews. And people should read how it has affected their lives. There's a universal message or there's no message. So that's the reason I write this stuff.
4: Well, and in a sense, it's almost the definition of God. Yes. If there is a God, then God relates to everyone.
5: Yes. That's exactly right. There has never been such a notion that God only speaks to the Jews. Jews have never had that notion, I have to say. The Torah is critical of Jews. I'm critical of Jews. But I've got to give Jews credit where it is deserved. There is no such thing as a Jewish God. <laughs> God is universal.
4: And God is God.
5: Yes, exactly.
4: (laughs) So, but it's interesting, you do make a point from a historian's standpoint that there are a remarkable number of details about ancient Egypt. Right. That sort of validate the probability that this was pretty close to contemporaneous in being written.
5: When I write about the Torah, and here obviously I'm writing about Passover, which is from the Torah, the ubiquity of stuff nobody would know later on and has been verified by archaeology, for example, is really one of the many arguments I make for the authenticity of the Torah. Who would know this stuff later on? There are things in the Torah that are inexplicable, Torah again is the first five books, that are inexplicable without knowing ancient, let's say, Akkadian or Mesopotamian. And who knew that? People say, well, this stuff comes from the Second Temple period, you know, after let's say the 4th century BC, but they wouldn't have known about this. They were no more familiar with that stuff than we are. So yes, I think there are many persuasive elements for the historicity of the events.
4: But one of the questions you wrestle with, which is, I think, one of the hardest for people to understand, is that if God took the Jews out of Egypt, why didn't he take them out of Europe during the Holocaust? And why isn't he protecting people right now in Ukraine?
5: That's right. I don't know of a better response than a rabbi in the 1950s, Milton Steinberg, I believe was his name. And he said something brilliant. He said it as follows. The believer has to account for one thing, the existence of unjust suffering. The atheist has to account for the existence of everything else. I find that to be incredibly insightful. I fully acknowledge, that's why I use reason, I don't have a mystical answer for the amount of unjust suffering. I have a rational answer, which is not emotionally satisfying, but it is quite rational, and to me therefore pretty satisfying, and that is What is God supposed to do? The questions are endless. Why did God allow the Holocaust? Why did God allow the Armenian mass murderers? Why did God allow Pol Pot in Cambodia? Why did God allow the Inquisition? Why did God allow slavery? Why did God allow a woman to be raped yesterday in the Bronx? The only answer is, if you're really asking a serious question, then you want God to have deprived humans of free will. You want God to have made robots that could do no more evil than a flower can. But I don't want to be a flower, and neither does anybody who asks the question. They want to have the freedom that always comes with the possibility of evil. Now there's a tougher question, and that is natural unjust suffering, earthquakes and cancer. I don't have an answer. Could God have made a world where it is not possible for a cell to metastasize, where even if you walk out in the snow, you know, in a bathing suit, you won't get pneumonia or you won't even get a cold? Do we want a world where there would have been absolutely no illness, no possibility of illness? Maybe so. But I think people need to grapple with what they're really asking for when they ask the question.
2: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry.
4: is the centrality of having the children, starting with the youngest, asking the four questions. And it strikes me that it is so relevant to the mess the United States is in right now that I really was looking forward to just asking you, expand upon why it's important for the children to be active participants.
5: I will. Uh, By the way, I got to tell you, I'm very honored. You obviously read the book.
4: (laughs) Yes. Alan made me. You know, the rabbi stands over you. He says, this you must read before you talk to Dennis. (laughs) God
5: bless Alan. (laughs) That's fine with me. I don't care why you read it. (laughs) I'm very, very pleased. I will answer you about the children. That's central to the whole thing. But just tell me why you feel it's relevant to the United States.
4: Because for two generations, we have lacked the courage and the discipline to involve our children in their own civilization. And then we have been surprised that when they are left uneducated, that they drift back towards barbarism.
5: Okay. I'm glad I asked. That's exactly right. So the Haggadah and the evening are dedicated to children. They are the centerpiece Because it is a biblical law, again, the Seder comes from biblical law, that you have to tell your children about the Exodus. It's simple as that. Therefore, that obviously is central. And the other obvious point is that they are the future by definition. Young people are the future. Young people are not intrinsically more valuable than old people, but they are the future. If you don't get the children, you lose your future. This is all cliches, but they're all true. So you're right, the ceremony centers around the four questions, and I remember reciting it when I was the youngest in the house. I was the younger of two siblings, and I said it starting probably when I was five years old. I didn't even know exactly what I was saying. I said it in Hebrew. And it's four questions. A, the kid knows the Seder revolves around him or her. B, the kid knows that the way to learn is to ask questions. That's a very, very, very Jewish thing to do. You ask questions. And that is the mode of learning. So, The kid asks the questions and the rest of the evening is in effect an answer and the questions are all, why is this night different from all other nights? That's how all four begin. We eat different foods, people are reclining, not just sitting. Hey, please explain all of this to me. And then my favorite part is. Not only are there four questions, there are four kids. The Haggadah says there are four types of kids. The bad kid, the wise kid, the simple kid, and the kid who doesn't know how to ask questions. And you have to know how to address each one. And it's brilliant. They knew thousands of years ago, this psychological sophistication, you can't raise every kid the same. Kids come out differently. But my favorite point, and this one I think is original to me, I certainly am happy to quote others. When I was a kid, I didn't understand something. Why is there no good child? There's a bad child, a wise child, a simple child, and a child doesn't know how to ask. Where is the good child? I never got an answer. But life has taught me. There is no goodness without wisdom.
4: It's a wonderful statement. One other thing, just to go back to this for a second, because it's so historically amazing and so real, and I think that that's part of what we shy away from, is coming to grips with reality. I get the sense that Passover as an annual event occurred extraordinarily early and was driven into the mind of the culture, if that's the right phrase, with enormous firmness, probably while Moses was still alive, but certainly in the next generation after that. I mean, is that your sense that it actually, literally that the dinner and the experience of it probably started up very quickly shortly after leaving Egypt?
5: It's not even my sense, unless one thinks it was made up That's why I say the holiday is about 33,000 to 3,500 years old, depending on when you date the Exodus. I tend to date it around 1200 BC. Others a little earlier, others a little later. It doesn't matter to be in the least when it's dated. But it began at the beginning. This is the oldest ongoing holiday in the world. There's no close second. And it does everything. I mean, I'm telling you the importance of ritual in keeping a nation or a religion alive. But there's so much more. I'll tell you another thing that the Seder does. It inculcates in kids gratitude. The most famous song in there, the Dayenu, is all a song of gratitude. Well, God, thank you for doing this, because even if you had just done that, we would be thankful. And then he does another thing. Oh, thank you for that. And even if you just did that, we'd be thankful. It's a phenomenal song. It's a bit hyperbolic, but it makes an incredibly important point. And that is gratitude is the mother of happiness, the mother of goodness, and the mother of survival. So we're not grateful to the founders of America anymore. We may not survive.
4: Okay. Somebody who doesn't have anything like your knowledge. When I read that, I got sort of the reverse in the sense that It struck me it was building a layer cake of God's generosity that you did this for me, and then you did this for me, and then you did this for me. I mean, it's an amazing list. All right,
5: so we don't differ at all. That's exactly what it is. It's a layer cake of God's generosity. I'll live with that. But in any event, it teaches you gratitude.
4: Well, it would if you were capable of being grateful.
5: Yes, that's fair.
4: One of the problems in the modern world is if you place yourself ahead of God, and this goes right to the core of the Ten Commandments, if you place yourself ahead of God, it's impossible to feel gratitude because you felt you were owed it.
5: You'll like this, then, one of my theories about higher education. I say this on my radio show often. Today, you get a B.A. in ingratitude, a master's in ingratitude, and a Ph.D. in ingratitude.
4: Yeah, there's a lot to that. I think that is part of the sickness of our current culture. Just for a minute, at a practical level, tell us about Prager University and so the listeners who might not really be familiar with it, what can they find there and how can they interact with it?
5: Well, we've become, thanks to our work, thanks to God, thanks to supporters, we're by far the largest conservative video site on earth. We have over a billion views a year. 65% of the viewers are under 35 years of age we put out a five-minute video every week on really every subject except STEM science technology engineering math we're not going to teach you math in five minutes nor is that our aim our motto is we teach what should be taught and it just isn't taught there are now 500 of these videos up they're given by some of the finest minds around in Europe and the United States, every background, every color, every religion, and they change people. I'll give you one example. A girl at Harvard wrote me a, a letter about a year and a half ago. I don't see much of my mail. Thank God I saw this one. She said, your book and You, my book's still the best hope, about America and American leftism and she said I went from a liberal to conservative and I got in touch with her and she was then a sophomore at Harvard she turned out to be a brilliant wonderful young woman in fact I'm starting a podcast with her I've never done any broadcast with a partner starting a podcast with her Julie Hartman she just wrote a piece for the wall street journal about how her fellow students at Harvard are sheep. And that's pretty gutsy for a kid at school to say, but they are sheep. we sheep are teaching kids to be sheep. This is what we saw. So we're having a huge effect. I went to Romania and Hungary to lecture over a thousand young people, all because they watched PragerU videos. You want your kid to know in a sophisticated, entertaining five minutes what non-leftists think about any subject, PragerU provides
4: it. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you for joining me, and we're going to both have a link to buy your new book, The Rational Passover Haggadah, and we're going to have a link to Prager University so that everybody who listens can sample for themselves this extraordinary work that you've been involved in. Dennis, I thank you for just a remarkable conversation.
5: Well, I got to tell you, I do a lot of these. Nobody surpasses you. It is a total joy for me. (laughs) Really, it's a total joy. I would love to do it again.
4: Well, we'll try to find a time and we'll do it again.
5: Terrific. Thank you very much. Be well.
4: Thank you to my guest, Dennis Prager. You can get a link to buy the Rational Passover Haggadah on our show page at newtsworld.com and you can also find a link to Prager University. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
3: work.